Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. We're excited to be here for another week of the Midnight Founders Podcast. Today, we are lucky enough to be here with our first author, Curtis Morley. Welcome. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Excited. Another cool thing about Curtis, we've done a lot with Rev Road and Curtis over the years, and uh, you hiked Kilimanjaro, right? I did. Yeah, yes. we'll have to get into that. I hope to hear about that too. <laughs> yeah, and actually, um, I'm taking another group up um, next year. So mm. if you guys want to brave, go it, on huh? an expedition that will change your life. We are going back up. We're going That's back like up to the top. Bucket list item at the very top of the bucket list, right? Kilimanjaro. One of those things. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Awesome. Uh, the first thing that we do on the podcast is we want to hear your 30 second elevator pitch. So, okay. So, um, there's, there's two of them. So maybe I'll go a full minute. Let's do it. Both of them. I want to hear both. (laughs) Because the, the entrepreneur's paradox, um, which is, is my book, um, made the wall street journal bestseller, um, uh, all sorts of Amazon, number one, et cetera. Um, the, the 30 second elevator pitch for entrepreneurs paradox is that we take businesses from basement to buyout. So we help turn companies into rapid growth companies. And, um, and we do that, um, through the methodology described in the entrepreneurs paradox, the book. So that's the, the entrepreneurs paradox pitch. And, um, like we talked about earlier before the show, um, I'm currently in process of writing my next book called Counterfeit Emotions. And um, Counterfeit Emotions is something I'm incredibly passionate about. And it applies to the business world, but it also applies to any human with a heart. So, And most of us have hearts, so I'm pretty sure that's a good swath of the, <laughs> the population. Last but, time I checked anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the premise is that, that we have... Every emotion, every emotion we have um, is, is for a purpose, but not every emotion we have serves us, And um, besides being a messenger. And so there's what I call authentic emotions, emotions that, that serve us, they connect us, they move us in, a, in an important direction, um, they value us, they, they have the motivation of, of love and surrender behind them. There's a whole list of those, and for each one of those, there's a counterfeit. Every single authentic emotion has a counterfeit. And it's fascinating because I've done a tremendous amount of research on this, and there really isn't, um, there isn't anyone talking about this. And it's so critical. It's so important. Um, the closest thing I found was a Buddhist teaching that talks about near enemies and far enemies. Um, for example... You know, it's easy to understand that the far enemy or the, the opposite emotion of love is hate. But what's that emotion that sidles right up to love that looks and acts and feels like love but isn't? And, um, and those are the counterfeits. And in today's world, we, we talk about emotions in a very um, distorted view, naming the counterfeits as if they were the authentic emotion as if they were the original emotion. And that's what's so crazy is these emotions are so sneaky. They look and act and feel like the original emotion, but they create these destructive patterns of disconnection 
in our lives. And so um, just one simple example that's easy to understand is, is guilt versus shame. And in today's world, guilt actually is getting a really bad name. <laughs> like people are like, oh, don't let them guilt you. Oh, that's a guilt trip. You know? And if people really understood the true nature of guilt, they would understand it's a beautiful, healthy emotion. It's an emotion that serves us tremendously. But what doesn't serve us is shame. And shame, it looks and acts, it feels like, you know, it puts on the clothing of guilt, but it creates disconnection in our lives. Whereas guilt, the original, um, the etymology of the word guilt comes from the old English word gilden, which means to make whole. And so in order to make whole, I need to connect. I need to go to you. If I've done something wrong to you, I need to go to you. I need to connect with you. I need to bring it into the light whatever it was that I did. Whereas shame says, no, 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 hide, hide, blame. And so, but guilt and shame feel so much alike. Yeah, they're used interchangeably a lot of times, aren't they? Yeah. Interesting. And we don't take the time to spend enough, enough energy to say, what emotion am I actually feeling here? Is this guilt, which actually, you know, there's... Well, we can, we can get into all the, the things, but um, part of this, this book is that there's four criteria to know if an emotion is authentic or counterfeit. And um, we can go through those criteria. Um, but one thing I forgot to say is there's one emotion that has no counterfeit. There's just one, and that's peace. Peace is the only emotion that has nothing that feels like peace mm. that creates disconnection in our lives. It's the only one. Every that creates other. disconnection? Yeah. Huh. So there's nothing that, that looks and acts and feels like peace, but then creates disconnection. That has a bad connotation, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Interesting. I never thought of that. You can tell, just seeing you come alive in front of the microphone, you're passionate <laughs> about it and you're in it right now. So yeah, this is very close to the surface for you. It is, it is. I just um, keynoted a conference last weekend um, and... And understanding these concepts are so critical to emotional health. And right now, I'm, I'm, I'm an activist against the new pandemic. And the new pandemic is an emotional pandemic. Hmm. What happened with coronavirus and everything there, you know, yeah, there was a virus. But right now, we're feeling this, the effects of isolating we're going into hiding. We're, you know, we're shutting people off. We're disconnecting from humanity and we're starting to get back in, but we're really feeling the effects of that. And to put some numbers behind that, um, you look at suicide rate, especially with teens, it's skyrocketed during COVID because, because of that disconnection, because of that isolation. Previously, students were, um, you know, a student with an F on their grade on the report card was less than 30% pre-COVID. Now it's flipped. Now it's over 70. 70% of students now have an F, at least one F on their Wow, you're kidding. And why is that? Is because we're shutting down our emotions. We're we're disconnecting, we're isolating. And um, this one is really disturbing to me. Um, I sit on one of the um, boards for Sapria, um, used to be the Unique Foundation. Yeah, he. And, uh, we had Chris on the podcast. Chris was on the yeah, podcast. I noticed, yeah. I noticed Chris Yaden was on. He was fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, and I was I was 
in a meeting with Sean Reyes, and he said that pre-COVID, the state of Utah would get um, three calls a day or three reports a day for sexual solicitation of a minor. After COVID started, they were getting 50. And so... Per day? Per day. Wow. Yeah, per day. Almost the same amount as one month prior, they're getting that in one day. And, um, and so we're really you know, being affected emotionally by this. And um, if I can share a personal story, um, I have a dear friend, and this, this is actually one of the main reasons I decided to write this book. Um, a dear friend, his name's Jerry Williamson, and I want to make sure I say his name because that's really important. And he didn't understand the difference between guilt and shame. He didn't understand the difference between pain and misery. And, and he ended up taking his life. And I'm Sorry not, to hear it. Thanks. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that. And, and that's one of the main reasons I'm writing this book is because we don't have to have that. We don't have to have that. And really taking the time to understand those emotions and understanding the difference and be able to root out those counterfeits like, you know, a hundred dollar bill. You know, if we're working at Jamba Juice or, um, or whatever, somebody comes and brings in a counterfeit bill, you know, we're very vigilant of marking the bill and making sure that we are not taking counterfeits, but we don't do that for our emotions. You know, we don't say, wait a minute, does this emotion serve me? And, and that's what, that's what this book is about. That's what this next stage in my life is about. Fascinating. So are you, are you taking the angle of, uh, from a personal standpoint or business or? Um, it's both. Angle? Okay. Yeah, it's both. So I was, it's, it's funny. I was talking with a, a CEO, a local CEO, you would know him. He's running a, um, what, a $250, $300 million company um, here in the Valley. And we were talking about counterfeit emotions. And one of the ones that I love that I just get excited about talking about because it's one of those that just like shatters your brain is that nice is the counterfeit of kind. And um, yeah. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. And it was funny because he, he was like, no way. I just had a meeting with my executive team and... I didn't say it nearly as eloquently as that, but the idea, I was like, you guys stop being nice. Nice, you know, talks, beats around the bush. It talks around the subject. It's not direct. It's not, you know, we're not, we're placating. And kind, um, and to illustrate the difference, kind, kind always leans in. That's one way you can know if you're being kind. Nice, you know, there's an entire book of No More Mr. Nice Guy. Nice doesn't. Nice leans out, but does it with a smile. So, you know, and you think, well, wait a minute, Bambi's best friend. What, what did Bambi's best friend say? You know, what, what was it? The, if you can't say anything nice, don't say nothing at all, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I'm like, wait a minute, pause. Actually, no, no. People say nice things all the time. And if you look at nice, nice often is not honest. Nice says, I've got something going on here that tells me there's a trigger, and yet I'm going to smile and I'm going to placate and I'm not going to rock the boat. 
because I'm being nice. Whereas kind, kind leans in. But the funny thing about nice is nice leans out, but does it with a smile. It's like, <laughs> yeah. here we go. I'm backing up. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling away. That, and that makes so much sense to me as you're saying this. I'm like, oh yeah, I can completely see the difference. And what a poignant top poignant topic for, um, you know, this, this region, this area, you know, just seems like there is a lot of kindness and niceness, but could be confused quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was talking with the CEO, he's like, I, I was like, I have to have, I have to have you guys be direct. Stop being nice. You know, and it doesn't mean be mean. It doesn't mean be blunt. And, you know, and sometimes when I teach this principle, people think, oh, okay, that you just gave me permission. I can swing to the other side of the pendulum. <laughs> I can go to the fire enemy and stop being nice. And now I can just be mean. <laughs> but no, kind is loving. Kind is caring. And diplomatic too. Yeah. And, and there's each of the chapters has a model of how to go from nice to kind or how to go from misery to pain or how to go from shame to guilt. So how to go from the counterfeit into the authentic. And one of the key parts of the model for going from nice to kind is number one, you have to know your boundaries. You have to know where your boundaries are, where you stop and others start and what you're willing to accept and not accept. But then once you know that, then there's this pattern of invite and surrender invite surrender, meaning I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to, instead of saying, I'm not going to rock the boat, I'm going to invite you into a space of health, invite you into a space of safety, invite you into that place. And then I'm going to surrender because it's your job at that point to accept or deny either way. And at that point, I have to surrender the outcome. I can make the invitation to be kind and say, hey, you know what, AJ? I've, I noticed something that's a destructive pattern in your life. Would it be okay if we talked about that? And when I say that, with that question mark on the end, then that's the point. I have to step back. That's the invitation, essentially. Yeah. So I invite, but then I surrender. And nice won't do that. Nice will be, nice is the, I mean, a prime example, nice is the person that sees the spinach in your teeth <laughs> and just like, hey, let's it happen, uh, you know, or your zipper's down and I'm about to go up on stage and they say nothing, <laughs> which has happened, unfortunately. <laughs> um, that's nice because, oh, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Well, it's a whole lot more uncomfortable to have that zipper down on stage than if you would have said, you know, two minutes earlier, hey, your zipper's down. You know, I, no joke, I had this experience, unfortunately. <laughs> I went up on stage, did this whole speech, came back down, my zipper was down the whole time. Somebody's like, yeah, I was going to tell you about that. That's <laughs> a prime example of being nice. Uh, but they were like, yeah, I was going to tell you, but I didn't want to embarrass you. Yeah. I'm like, well... well it's uh, worse now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. Oh, I've been guilty of being nice. That's terrible. <laughs> well, well thank, we all they, have. Yeah, thanks for reminding me about that. That's <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Yeah. So are you in your book then, are you taking like each emotion and showing the opposite and then saying, hey, here's how you kind of move into that that domain or or is that kind of how it's structured or yeah, I'm glad to, different? I'm glad you brought that up um, because you use the word opposite. And, um, and it's easy to understand the opposite of emotions, um, but it's not easy to understand the counterfeits because the, counterfeit. the opposite is Thank way you. over here. Mm -hmm. The counterfeit is, 
it's right next yeah, to thank it, you for that clarification it's yeah. trying to put its arm around the original emotion and then you know kind of push it into the background and say ah no i'm i'm right here. this is me this this is you know i am this emotion um for example another pairing or another dyad is um surrender which is an amazing it's actually a meta emotion so surrender goes through a whole bunch of the authentic emotions and the counterfeit for surrender is resignation. Hmm. So surrender says, do your best and give God the rest. <laughs> do everything you can. Work your hardest. Make this happen. But then surrender the outcome. Resignation, on the other hand, which feels like surrender. That's the key, is it feels like the original emotion. Resignation says, eh, I'm not even going to try. You just give up. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating. I, I love it when we meet with people that you can just tell have found their calling and their purpose in life. And you're one of these to me that embodies this, like you can just tell by the way you talk about what you're doing um, that you have found a purpose in what you're doing. And it's like you're aligned with what, you know, you your purpose is. Did you know all along that you wanted to be an author and that you wanted to talk about these things? Or is this something that kind of has evolved over time? Um, I, I knew I wanted to write a business book. Um, okay. Ever since I started making mistakes in my first business, <laughs> which I'll tell you what, my first company, my first real company outside of all the, you know, lemonade stands and the, the childhood businesses, but my first company... I, I made every mistake possible. And, and that's not hyperbole. That's like, I talk about 16, the 16 startup pitfalls. I made all of them. That's how I know about these is because, and, and some of them I, I made two and three times just so I got the lesson. You know? <laughs> Did I really get it? Let me make that mistake again and see if it works out. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, so I really wrote this book for the 26-year-old Curtis starting his first company that um, made all those mistakes, and I did. I made them all. And from the outside, I was winning awards. Um, I got Entrepreneur of the Year, you know, 40 under 40, all these awards. And if you saw from the outside, you would have thought, oh, man, Curtis is the bomb. He's, yeah, he's made it. And people did. But what they didn't know is, like, one month I'd be filthy rich, the next month I'm destitute. And, the, you know, this cycle going up and down and and. The um, there's a chapter there's a chapter just on imposter syndrome in the entrepreneur's paradox that is is actually built into um, entrepreneurship because if you think about it why does anyone start a company because they have an idea no one's thought of or they have a way to do something better than anyone else both of those are new and yet they're expected to be the expert on something that's brand new. So how can you be the expert on something no one has ever seen before, no one's ever done before? And so the imposter syndrome is actually baked into entrepreneurship because everybody's like, oh, you're the genius, you're the super, you, you know. And in the book, it, it walks you through. You can actually take a survey to find out what your imposter syndrome type is. Find out and then... Well, there's types. Yeah, there's types of that, imposter That chapter syndrome. really resonated with me. I really like that one. Oh, thanks, AJ. That was really helpful. Yeah. We hear about imposter syndrome all, all the time. time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Oh, I had it so bad. And the crazy thing was each award I won, um, whether it was a technical award, whether it was a business award, 
made it worse. <laughs> it didn't make it better because now there's a bigger expectation. Oh, that's and so funny. And it just kind of heaped on. And it, and it wasn't until I realized, oh, it's okay if I don't know all the answers. It's okay because a Harvard MBA wouldn't know all the answers because it's brand new. It's something I'm doing that's brand new. And so, yeah. So going back to your question, you know, did I always know I wanted to be an author? For this book, ever since I was making all those mistakes in business, I'm like, yes, I want to write this book. And, um, and this book really, it was for me. I, you know, it was for the 26-year-old Curtis. But it was also you know, an amazing foot in the door into companies and like working with Rev Road and you know, all of these things. This next book, it's really not. You, you talked about finding a calling. This next book, it's not for me. It's... It's because there's a purpose, and that's... We're trying to save the Jerry's of the world, aren't we? We are, yeah, truly. And and I believe this is a way to do it. And not only do I believe it, but I've already seen it as I've been doing speaking engagements and keynoting at conferences and um, doing these workshops. The, the feedback that comes back is so beautiful because people say, I've never thought about this before. And it, it has cramped my life for ever since I was a kid. It has, it has blocked me from being the greatest me. And now I know a way out. Fascinating. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Curtis. That's cool. Yeah. What, um, <clears throat> just going back a couple steps, um, uh, you talked about your first business that you started that was a learning experience, right? <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that business. What was it and what were you doing? And That's a great way to put it. <laughs> That's awesome. Was that being kind or nice? <laughs> no, that, that, was a, that was very kind. Was it no, kind? Okay. Yes. Just want to make sure we're kind. doing it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, um, yeah, it's, it's funny because ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to, I wanted to be, an entrepreneur, and that, that actually has a really fun story to it. Um, when I was little, every Saturday, um, I would wake up early and go watch Saturday morning cartoons. And some kids these days will never experience because Netflix has everything you yeah, never want. they miss out on that, don't they? Yeah. It's not a thing anymore. There was so much excitement to go watch Saturday morning cartoons, and, and I would get my big bowl of cereal and just sit there and chomp and, and watch Super Friends and Scooby-Doo and, you know, all the, all the fun cartoons. And, um, and so this one particular Saturday, I had I'd, I'd gotten – not the regular cereal bowl, but like a mixing bowl and poured most of the peanut butter Captain Crunch, like the whole box into this bowl. And I'm just, I'm just chomping. And after cartoons was the Saturday morning special. And, um, and I would always turn it off, but I looked in my bowl and I still had like half the bowl left. And so, so I'm like, I'll just let it play. So I'm, I'm chomping away. And the CVS Saturday morning special came on and the um, the the boy, he was 15 years old at the time, and um, this is back in the 80s. Um, he he had started snow shack in California, so the very first snow cone, you know, your little corner snow cone shack, and um, and he at the time, this is 80s where money was actually worth something <laughs> back then. Um, he he was worth half a million dollars, and he was 15 years old. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm watching this with 
great big eyes, you know, the size of saucers. And I'm just like, whoa, eating my cereal and chomping on the Captain Crunch. And, and they kept using this word over and over. And I'm like, what is this? So it finished and I finished my Captain Crunch and I put my bowl down and I ran to my mom. I'm like, mom, mom, what does this word mean? She goes, what word? I said, entrepreneur. And she's like, oh, that's your dad. And my brain just exploded. I'm like, what? My dad's an entrepreneur? What? Are we rich? (laughs) Where's our snow shacks? Come on. (laughs) This is amazing. And and ever since that day, we lived in this teeny little town called Farron in the southern middle part of Utah. Do you know Farron, Jake? I do. I do too. Get out. You guys are two of like six people. (laughs) (laughs) It's not much there, but it's there. Yeah, that's true. Loved growing up there, but my dad owned the grocery store, singular, the the grocery store in the town. Yeah, and Monopoly. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he was an entrepreneur, and I'm like, okay, that's what I'm gonna be. So I'm, I'm I don't know, like 11 years old, and I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. So I did everything from selling greeting cards door to door as this little teeny kid and I'm knocking doors selling greeting cards and um, all that but yeah it wasn't until it wasn't until after college and I'm going to school and just like most entrepreneurs and, and this I talk about this in the book like most entrepreneurs I found out that I had a, a particular skill and um, which was interactive media and so um, so I was I was I had taken this uh, certification. Um, it's called Brain Bench back in the day, um, and the technology was Flash, so interactive media. It was originally Macromedia Flash, and then Adobe bought it, and I placed second in the world on this certification out of tens of thousands of people. And um, and I'd started doing Flash projects for people, and they're like, "Oh, you're amazing! You've got to start a company." And I'm like. I am amazing at Flash. Of course that equates to starting a company, <laughs> which is, you know, every cupcake baker. Why and did every... I make this before? Come on. <laughs> and um, and yeah, the truth is knowing code and knowing how to design and knowing interactive timelines and things or knowing a nice recipe for cupcakes has nothing to do with recipe for business. And But like almost every true entrepreneur, I'm like, well, of course, if I know how to do interactive media, that means I know how to run a business. Oh boy, <laughs> that, that was not the case. Um, but yeah, and so I, I opened so this is consultation services or something. For yeah, Flash, so or? we built we built websites, interactive media. Um, the LDS Church. We built uh, the music player to play hymns on. Um, we did at BYU. We did the um, Hall of Fame. All the interactive kiosks. We did interactive trade shows with touch screens and so anything with interactive media, but we were websites mostly. And, um, and the trouble was, is the, and the reason I named the book, The Entrepreneur's Paradox, is because um, with entrepreneurship, the paradox is that what gets you into business is what will actively prevent you from succeeding in business. That is the paradox, is that the thing that turns you into an entrepreneur is the thing that will stop your success as an entrepreneur. What does that mean? So if you're really good at sales, all of a sudden it's the fact that that's all you're doing and, and that's kind of your hindrance or what uh, practically how does it, how does it, how does it 
help us understand that better. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So um, in my case, I was really good at Flash. I was really good at interactive media, and people knew that. And you know, I was being written up in magazines uh, and all this stuff. And and um, and so everybody's like, "Oh, Curtis, we want you, you the person, not you the company. We want you the person." to develop this website or develop this uh, so scalability becomes the issue, this DVD. And all gotcha. of a sudden I am the bottleneck. Gotcha. And that's as I consult with companies now, as I consult with startups, um, one question that I ask every single startup is if you're building the product, who's building the company. And that's one of those light bulb moments for most entrepreneurs like, Oh Yeah. Because I'm the one making the cupcakes. I'm the one building the website. I'm the one, literally me. And there were times in my first company where I would go three days without putting my head on a pillow. And that makes you, Curtis, midnight, midnight founder. founder. <laughs> knew exactly where I was going with that one. So you're on the right podcast. <laughs> Love it. No sleeping and all work, right? Yeah. We talk about the stories often on this podcast. Yeah. And it was so unhealthy. But that's all I knew. That's, you know, I knew I had a deadline and I knew I had a project. And so put the two together and, and it was me waking up with, this is not hyperbole, with the imprints of the keyboard on my face because I had fallen asleep on my desk on the keyboard um, because I just couldn't stay awake any longer. And um, yeah. <laughs> also known as passing out. Yeah. <laughs> Unconsciousness. <laughs> you look at your document and it's just all A's, 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 um, putting sheet music online. And like I talked about, our first client was the LDS church, which that has a really neat story of how that came about. Um, but then from there we commercialized the product and, um, was the, really the first interactive online music player. So, um, you could pull up a piece of sheet music and instead of just seeing a PDF and then having an MP3, you could download or hit play on, um, you could actually play the sheet music. So it highlights the notes, um, kind of follow the bouncing ball. You can take parts in and out. So if, you know, if you have a four part song and you just want to sing, what are you seeing, AJ? Do you sing tenor bass? A uh, tenor. Yeah. Tenor. Jay? When I can sing, it's not always. <laughs> <laughs> Probably bass. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so you can take out all the other parts and only have your tenor line. So you could practice your tenor line or your bass line. And, um, and so, and you, if you wanted, like if it was too low or too high, you could actually go bump, bump, bump and bump it down. And then interesting. And all the music would rewrite itself. So in different keys and uh -huh. things. Yeah. All the accidentals would change. All the notes would change. Everything rewrites, rearranges. And all of a sudden now you have another piece of sheet music based off the original music. And so we, we got a patent for the technology and we, we helped, um, in conjunction with a, a man named Michael, uh, Michael Good out of California, we helped create the music XML standard. So um, the standard for sh 
sheet music, music XML is, is something that came out of this project as well. So that was, that was my second company. Yeah. So very technology focused. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. So did the, did you exit the first company? How, like, how did you transition to the second one? And then what happened with the second one? And yeah, so we, we, um, I, I was running both at the same time. Oh, okay. So we had started and like midnight said, founder wasn't enough. You wanted to stay up till five, <laughs> not, not three nights in a row, six <laughs> nights in a row. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely wasn't enough. Um, yeah. And, uh, like I said, there were some crazy things that happened to make the, the digital sheet music project work and, and turn that into a company. It was, it was so neat, but, um, but yeah, there from that company, um, I started a consultancy and actually worked for Franklin Covey for about three years in between leading their global marketing effort. And then, um, then, um, like I said, I had a consultancy. So then an e-learning company from there, um, helped two amazing brothers to just great people, just truly great people. Um, again, go from basement to buyout, not quite buyout yet, but, um, but yeah. And now, now I, I help all sorts of companies, um, go from basement to buyout. But then, like I talked about, um, one of my main focuses now is, is this new book and this new effort with counterfeit emotions. So uh, fascinating. Yeah. So you've probably seen, you know, I mean, you obviously have your own examples, but helping these other companies, uh, you know, from basement to buyout, um, and, and all the lessons that I'm sure are just packed in the book. Is there one in particular, if you had to give advice to an entrepreneur that's just getting started today, um, what would be the first thing that you'd tell them? The, the first thing, um, could I, could I do too? Oh, absolutely. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> the, the first thing I'd tell them is, is recognize the paradox and, and reboot your identity. So in my case, my identity was wrapped around this idea that, you know, oh, I'm this amazing interactive developer designer. Um, and, and that was killing me, literally. Um, it was, I worked way too much. It hurt my family life. I, you know, it was, it was destroying me. And, um, and all I had to do, like the day I recognized, oh, I'm stuck in this paradox and the paradox has a monetary ceiling. If you're stuck in the paradox, you will never get above this glass ceiling, this artificial ceiling that you impose on yourself. That's interesting. So breaking free from that paradox. Um, and one analogy I use in the book is, is the alligators is it's hard. It's hard to recognize that you're supposed to drain the swamp when you're eye to eye with the alligator, when, when that alligator is right here, your nose to nose with this alligator, you're going to want to wrestle the alligator instead of getting out, draining the swamp and letting, letting the alligators leave. Now, and draining the swamp means that instead of you being the expert, you have to give that up and instead take that recipe for those cupcakes and turn that into a recipe for business or take that formula for coding an awesome website, turn that into a formula for starting an awesome business and reboot your identity and say, okay, I am really good at this and I need to transfer that knowledge to others 
I need to get them to do the things I'm doing so that then I can work on building the business instead of building the product. Yeah, that's interesting. We meet with uh, founders all the time, and a lot of them talk about the difference between being like a good business owner and being a good uh, um, entrepreneur. So like so, some some of them are very good at their specific thing, mm-hmm. and that's why their company is successful is because like you, you are very, very good at coding. Mm-hmm. And... But not all of them can make that transition to being very good business owners at the same time. So like my dad has owned a cabinet shop since 1989. He is like the artist extreme. Yeah. He's, he can walk into an empty, empty house and see the kitchen. And so he's very good at that side. Um, not as good at the business owner side. So I think he needs to read the entrepreneur's <laughs> paradox because I think it would probably help him. We'll break him, through some of these challenges. We'll give him this coffee right here. Yeah, that <laughs> well, sounds great. Well, but like, I, I do think that that's something that probably cool, a lot yeah. of companies are are struggling with because we hear these stories all the time, and some of them are able to make the transition and be a successful CEO, but maybe some of them, you know, they they can't. They just need to to let it go and and move into that other role or, you know, vice versa. They need to focus on what they're good at and hire somebody else to come in and focus on that role. Yeah. I like how you said they, they limit themselves. Right. And that's, you can see that, you know, if if, uh, you look around and and different people and, and, and that was the question that I was going to is who, who do you find has read and, and um, seen the most benefit from your book? Is there a certain segment or target audience? Tell us about that. That's very insightful. Um, yeah, the typically it's it's the company that has hit that glass ceiling. It's the company that's got in the you know one million, two million dollar range, and they did amazing because Midnight Founders they're staying up all night every night to make this work, and by sheer grit they they make it to this point where they've got capital you know they've got revenue coming in oftentimes the profit side of things they're still figuring out um but they they've got it and they keep bumping up against this and they say oh i need to i need to step up and kind of like you're saying jake the um sometimes there there's well not sometimes every time there comes this inflection point in the business ownership and um and I'll talk a little more about inflection points um, here a little later, but there's this inflection point that they can either choose to step up and say, okay, I'm going to reboot my identity. I'm instead of being the number one or number two flash guy in the world, I'm going to be the best business guy in the world or gal, you know? Um, so they can either step up, they can step to the side and say, okay, I am just going to focus on product and I'm going to bring in somebody else to help me do the business side of things, or they can step back. And sometimes, you know, as companies come to me and say, Hey, you know, I want help. Will you consult? Will you coach mentor me? Um, I've had some companies say, you know, I really just want to go back to the basement. I don't like managing people. I don't like, you know, I know I can make a great living for myself and my family in my basement. And, and that's great. That's, that's totally doable. So there's an inflection point where people have to either step up and say, I'm going to let go of being the expert in this product or service 
they can step to the side and say, no, I'm going to hold on to being the expert and I'm going to bring in somebody else to help me with the business. Or I can step back and say, I'm just going to go back to the basement. And so um, some, you know, some entrepreneurs do that and that's okay. That's great because um, they know they can make a good living from themselves and their families, and it will always be that small. It'll be the cabinet maker. It'll be the, you know, and that glass ceiling will always be there. Um, and then there's those that say, no, I'm going to step up. I'm really going to, I'm going to make the difference and take that grit, take that drive, take the formula of what I did with my product, turn that into a formula for what I'm doing with my business. Yeah, it almost seems like there's a lot of companies that probably hit that glass ceiling and it's safer for them to be either way above it or way below it. But it's really dangerous territory to be trying to be a growing company, yeah, point. but not growing fast enough to cover that. Because yeah. we see all the time uh, at the bank companies that are growing too fast for themselves, but not fast enough to like really propel them to the next level. So. I think it's, I think what you're saying is like, it's just fascinating because, you know, being, being in the basement isn't necessarily a bad thing, but knowing what that future looks like and being okay with that future Mm -hmm. needs to be a decision. And then also knowing what the future looks like as huge company way above the glass ceiling, you need to know what that looks like and be okay with that future as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you illustrated that because that was the second point. You ask, what are the, what's the number one thing? Number one is to recognize the paradox. Number two is to pick your mountain. Yeah. And, and this is, um, <laughs> this is where the Kilimanjaro came in. So it's funny because I wrote about three fourths of the book prior to call, climbing Kilimanjaro and went up. They, they have a saying that you can't go up without coming down changed and every person on our expedition it's so was true, huh? a different person. Mm. And so I rewrote the entire book based on this analogy. And um, there's really only three mountains that you can climb. As a business owner, there's only three mountains. Everybody thinks, oh, I've got all this opportunity. You know, the world's my oyster. I can, I can go any direction. But if you really get analytical about it, there's only three mountains. You can climb the lifestyle mountain. You can climb the buyer be bought mountain which is the rapid growth, you know, acquisition or the IPO mountain. That's it. There's only three mountains you can climb. And, um, and like we're saying, the lifestyle is, is stepping back and saying, Oh, I'm growing too fast. I don't know what to do with all this. I don't want to be a manager. I don't like all these people around and that's totally fine. Um, but it's important to make a conscious decision around that. Um, or you can say, you know, I'm going for a buyer be bought strategy. I'm going for rapid growth. And so that's, you know, you can step into that or IPO. And if you, if you put that in terms of mountains, since we're here in Utah County, you know, the, the lifestyle business, it's, it's like climbing temp. You know, you throw on some, you throw on some sandals, you have your shorts and your PB and J in the backpack and, you know, you go the 15 miles up and back and it's a day and you're done, right? You can keep climbing that mountain over and over again. Um, the, the buyer be bought strategy is more like Kilimanjaro where Kilimanjaro is at 19,384 feet. Um, that's the, the top of the mountain. And to put that in perspective, an international flight, you fly at 20,000 feet. (laughs) So the top of Kilimanjaro is just underneath Ah. an intercontinental flight. And, um, 
and base camp of Kilimanjaro is at 15,000, um, just over 15,500 feet. And there is no location in the United States, in the continental United States, that's 15,000 feet. Like you cannot get that high by yourself in the U.S. It just doesn't even exist. Continental U.S. Alaska has one. Denali. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, it's not even here. There's nothing here. So base camp is higher than anywhere in the U.S. And, and in order to climb that mountain, you're required by law to have a guide. You have to have a guide, and um, it's smart to have porters. Um, but in our expedition, one of the biggest things was having peers, having people that were climbing with you. Because um, if you put that into the analogy of business, a, a guide is like a mentor or a coach. You know, you would never think of climbing Kilimanjaro without a, a coach, without a guide or a mentor. And, um, and porters are like employees that are loyal to the company, team members that say, you know what, I'm helping with this. I'm going to do my job. You know, this porter, one of the porters, all they did was carry up food for us. Because, you know, where Timpanogos is a one-day trip up and back, Kilimanjaro, the typical time is seven to ten days to climb. And it's 40. You're on the mountain for seven to 10 days. Yeah. Wow. We, we did it in five and we now understand why people do it in seven to 10 days. It was intense. Huh? Because it's crazy intense. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, you, you go up with mounds of supplies. You go up with training. I mean, you, there's, it's a different experience and both are very doable, but with the, the Kilimanjaro climb, you, you, it's a different experience and it's a different path. And most of the time entrepreneurs, they wake up and they're like, okay, what am I going to do today? And they're like, um, well, I'm going to look around. I'm going to do that and that and that. And, and they just wander around the foothills and they never say, I'm going to the top of that mountain. Most, um, entrepreneurs, small businesses, they're just like, you know what? I'm just going to wake up and do my thing instead of saying, where am I heading? And so the second point that I would, I would highly suggest is pick your mountain. And there's a formula, I call it the success formula in the book, it has four parts. The success formula says um, how much, so a monetary value, how much am I going to make? Either revenue, profit, buyout, um, you know, whatever it is, there's a monetary number. And it's important that it's, it's a dollar sign. So how much, by when, for what and why. And so going through each one of those, how much is, is what revenue am I going to get to or what profit am I going to get to? Or, you know, there's a dollar value. So let's just pick an easy one, $10,000 or $10 million, not 10,000. <laughs> let's say $10 million. That's what I'm going to go for. By when, this is part of the magic of the success formula, is you actually put a date on the calendar. So you don't say, oh, five years from now, 10 years from now. You don't say that. You say October 23rd, 2030. And you have an exact date on the calendar. Is that so it doesn't feel too ambiguous and you kind of put it off? Is that the whole yeah. reasoning behind that? Because it, it's crazy what happens to the brain. When you put an exact date on the calendar, it becomes real. Like it is concrete. You, you cannot ignore that. You can ignore 10 years from now. 10 years from now is just over there somewhere, right? You can't ignore October 23rd, you know, 
that's like, oh, that's all the time I have? Uh-oh, I better come up with this plan. And so um, what I do with my clients now is I help them you know, with the success formula and we pick that date and then we reverse engineer. Okay, if this is the amount by this date, how are you going to get there? How many employees yeah. is that going to take? What kind of growth are you going to have? And we look at, um, uh, we've got, actually there's a QR code that you can scan in the book that says, okay, if I'm this type of company, how does that compare to other growth rates? So I've taken a huge swath of data, um, the fastest growing companies, so Inc. 500, 5,000, um, took a look at those industry um, over, I think we're at 10 years now, um, at the data. So what is the average growth rate and how does that compare to what my goal is? So say I've got a goal of 10 million, well, in one year, does that work? Well, let's look at what that growth rate means. Okay, well, everybody else is doing about this. So is that realistic? Okay, let's look at this. That's a um, lot of midnight founder nights right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wanna space that out a little bit more. Yeah, so we reverse engineer that goal and we, we really get into the nuts and bolts of it and say, okay, what does that actually mean? If you wanna hit this goal, what does that mean? And then you have to say, okay, it means that I'm going to have this many employees and this many offices and this many products and we're going to have this many customers. And how does that look based on industry data? And so we go through the numbers and we figure out, okay, is this a realistic goal? Great, let's go for it. And, um, and when I say realistic, I want to make sure that one other thing that I add to that is, is this ambitious? Because you can say, yeah, I want to go from 100,000 this year to 200,000 next year. And it's like, okay, that, you know, who's who's behind this massive effort? It's like, okay, well, that, that's great. But the energy behind it, you know, without the ambitious side, there's, there's lacking that energy. And um, I'm very selective with the clients I work with. One thing that I do in my interviewing of my clients is I say, do they have the indefatigable drive that will get them to where they're going? And if I were to say, what's the number one indicator of success for an entrepreneur? It's that. It's that drive that will make them a midnight founder or hopefully with the right principles like in the book, um, will get them there without all the late nights, sleepless yeah. nights. But do they have the grit? Do they have the drive to say, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to do whatever it takes that would that's my number one indicator of whether I want to work with a client or not. And how do you test for that? I'm curious. Um, you you can see I, I call it the beautiful spark. Uh. <laughs> um, is that you can see their passion. You can you know like um, when I when I came on board with eLearning Brothers, the two brothers Andrew and Sean. Um, Andrew, like I can't speak highly enough about him. That guy has grit and drive for like most of Utah, he's just, it's incredible. And he's made that shift beautifully. Like I, I've never seen anyone make that shift more than Andrew Sibley. Like he is a, a true CEO and has made that shift from entrepreneur to CEO. And it's incredible. But yeah, you can see the beautiful spark. You can see the motivation that, and you, you know, when I talked with them, the stories that they tell, of I had to do this or, um, you know, one entrepreneur is sold his car to make payroll, um, you know, make the 
tail end of payroll on a hard loan and then bought it back when they got paid from their clients. And, you know, that type of thing that just says, I, I'm going to make this work. And a, a fun story is when I was starting my agency, my interactive agency, um, one of my friends, his name is Reed Wright. Um, I wonder if his middle name's arithmetic, but anyway, he's <laughs> Reed Wright. He, Ooh, that was a great dad joke, Curtis. It was. <laughs> Such a dead joke. <laughs> but um, he had also started an agency, and this was um, during the 2000 bubble, and companies were going out of business left and right. And we were in my car. I'll never forget this. We are in my car, and he goes, Curtis, you know why we're still in business and everyone else is going out? I'm like, why, Reed? He's like, because we're too stupid to know when to give up. <laughs> and, that's a classic. Quote that, man. Yeah. That's great. And that's that's the drive is like there is no other option it's gonna work we have to make this work i'm gonna do whatever it takes i'm gonna sell my car i'm gonna you know i'm gonna spend those late nights understanding that and then applying business principles to that it's magic it just all of a sudden things skyrocket i love it curtis this has been so fun i'm so glad that we could be here together to share some of this time and and you can tell us about your books and the cool things you've done yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss or talk about in the podcast that we haven't covered that would be helpful to the to the listeners and the audience? Um, actually, with my new book, with Counterfeit Emotions, we, we're doing a conference down in St. George on June 10th okay. um, that is focused around teens and college-age students. Um, that It's called Safe to Feel, the Safe to Feel conference that help help people get, well, specifically teens and college age students, help them get into their feelings, help create a safe space where they can feel. And so we're doing that June 10th. And then we're actually going to have one up here this way, Utah County in the fall. Um, but we've got amazing speakers coming we've got some incredible sponsors that have already put in. And, um, so you yeah. just register for that online or something. Yeah. It's free to teens, um, and students. And then, um, the first 300 parents or adults that want to join, um, we're, we've knocked the price down to $20. So, um, so yeah. And how do they find that? Um, they can go to the safe to feel.com safe number two feel.com and it'll show the conference and, um, and yeah, they can register we're giving away some amazing prizes as well to teens, snowboards and cool. Apple products. And, um, Yeah. Some gifts You're hosting, Chris. Is that right? What's that? You're hosting. Yeah, my, yeah myself and the, a company. Well, it's it's put on by a, a nonprofit called the Mecca Project, um, and then um, which is Christy Holt and a company called Vibonics. Oh, we love Christy. Yeah, she's fantastic. She is. Christy's yeah. amazing. So we're putting it on together. Is that why you're starting down in St. George? Because she's based out of St. Yeah, George. Yeah, she's right? based out of St. George. So we'll do that one down there, and then we're going to do one up here in the fall. Cool. Um, but yeah, just helping fight this new pandemic and helping people get back into their emotions and realize it's okay. It's okay to feel we're, we're so good at suppressing, especially since the pandemic. We're so good at isolating that we've got to get people back into feeling. We've got to help them in the business world as well as in the personal space. And so, so yeah, thanks cool. for letting me this talk is great. about that. To wrap up, Curtis, how do people find more about you? Do they go to a website or um, Yeah, you or? can go to entrepreneursparadox.com for the business side of things, um, counterfeitemotions.com for um, the 
emotional intelligence side of things and um, or just reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's a great way to great way to connect. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun. Yeah. Uh, good to get to know you more. Good to hear more about what you're working on. I'm excited to hear uh, updates. It sounds like you're pushing it off a little bit before the next book will come out, but I'm excited to read it once it comes out. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. And for anybody that does want to find out more about counterfeit emotions, one of the best places is the Facebook group. So I've got a Facebook group where it's very active and we're actually, um, we're spending time switch with each one of the dyads. So we're actually practicing um, going from the counterfeit to the authentic. And um, so, yeah, join the Facebook group, Counterfeit Emotions, cool. and yeah, can find out more there until the book is published. I'm having, as I release chapters, I'm having people read each chapter um, in a pre-release. And so, awesome. Yeah, fun stuff. Thanks, Curtis, for being with us today. The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And RevRoad is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.